0: Hi, I'm Andrew, and welcome to the Reviewer 2 Dies Geoengineering Engineering podcast. I'm here today with Peter Eisenberger, and we're going to be talking about CDR and all things global thermostats. Welcome to the show. Ah, oh, Peter, you're on mute. First time we've had this. Falling into the classic Zoom trap. <laughs> nice, right, nice. We, we are now actually joined by Peter Eisenberger. Um, I'll probably leave that in the edit for that true Reviewer 2 Uh, feel um, bringing you the simultaneously the most amateur and also most professional geoengineering podcast it being the only one Um, so you're going to get what you're given and you're going to like it peter thanks for coming on Um, so do you want to give us a a a, a potted introduction uh, to you um, and your organization or organizations because you've got a few things going on haven't you
1: Sure, thank you. And thank you, for Andrew, for all the work you're doing to promote uh, conversations <laughs> within the- uh, very
0: generous of you. <clears throat> I bet you won't be as nice to me after I finish giving you a good going over during no. this uh, podcast, but we'll uh, see how it goes.
1: Andrew, I'm, I'm a physicist. I love uh, strong debates. Okay, let's so get one of those
0: here. Strong <laughs> we'll debates with are Perhaps very not as clever people as you're used to from your physics department. So, um, you, uh, do you want to so start let me, off by telling?
1: Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. As I said, I'm a physicist by training. Uh, my career involved uh, spending uh, my first 13 years at Bell Laboratories. Uh, and then when we, when we so thought... What, what, ready- is
0: Bell, what is Bell Labs? I mean, I, I kind of hear about these uh, mythical places of academic excellence around the U.S., you know, Jet Propulsion Labs, Bell Labs, Xerox Park. I don't really know what any of them are. I mean, Bell is used to be a monopoly state telephone provider, didn't it? In the 60s, but I don't, I don't think it is anymore, so.
1: That's correct. And, and research benefited from that monopoly. It was really a, an amazing place to be. Uh, and it was really, uh, certainly one of the high points in my, uh, in my career.
0: The, so what, what, what goes on at Bell Labs? And so if it's, if it's, not, if it's not Bell Telecoms now, then who, who owns it and what does it do? No, it, is, it still supports AT and It just changed in right. nature uh,
1: completely. Okay. Uh, in any case, uh, 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 I was then—you uh, may remember this—we thought we were running out of oil in the '80s, and I went yep. from there to uh, help uh, work with Exxon, that had switched from becoming an oil company trying to become an energy company. I led their research on solar photovoltaics, and I eventually became the head of their uh, sort of $100 million a year effort in R&D to try to, find alternative fuel, try to find alternative fuel.
0: Oh, we've got a dog. Excellent. We haven't had a dog on a review or two podcast for right. quite some time. He's probably better qualified than I am to review your work. So anyway, um, we can still uh, carry on with him.
1: Yeah. So uh, we did a lot of research on alternative fuels. And uh, uh, it, it's where I came up with the uh, notion... In thinking about what an alternative energy system would look like. So I came up with the idea of mimicking uh, photosynthesis uh, and, and, and taking CO2 from the air, uh, uh, energy from the sun, and hydrogen from water, and creating a, a synthetic hydrocarbon economy uh, that would uh, be sustainable. But anyway, I uh, clear that was an idea at that time that was premature. And I went from there to Princeton University, and to, I was a member of the physics
0: department. Let, uh, we like tangents on the Reviewer Two podcast, so let me just take you down one tangent. I, I spoke to David Keith um, about this a while ago, not on the podcast, but just uh, uh, a Banff of all places, I think. Uh, and he was saying that the and kind of as you as you've pointed out, that oil companies seem to be rather better at being oil companies than they are at being energy companies. They they don't seem to relish that transition. So I'd be interested to get your you know take on that was. Was it sensible for Exxon to have a, have a pop at that? Or do you think that uh, um, the oil companies should just um, get on with uh, sucking the oil out of the ground and then accept their time in the sun will soon fade and, and they'll slide into history as we uh, join the new energy economy? What's your take on that?
1: Well, I mean, I, I definitely think that uh, over time uh, people should adjust to new opportunities. And and energy is certainly a crucial thing. and. Therefore, I would encourage all all quote unquote uh, uh, companies that are in the energy business to to, to 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 participate as they as their capabilities suggest they can in the in in, in the new energy economy. And certainly, that's what Exxon did uh, before, and, and 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 you can see that many all companies are doing that now. But in any case, if I can just quickly finish, I went to Princeton, and and from there, I was uh went to columbia university and headed the earth institute i was the founder of it before jeffrey Sachs took over it and the most relevant thing to this uh podcast where, is, where that,
0: is columbia university i'm assuming that it's not actually in columbia is it so, it's in it's in new york city right okay
1: and so the uh from, from there i went to uh, uh is it, uh, that, that, that is a place where for the past uh, 20 years, I've been teaching a course called Closing the Carbon Cycle, and that is uh, how I got into this uh, uh, business of doing, uh, uh, trying to develop a technology uh, for direct air capture.
0: Okay. Uh, has your course changed much in that time, or is it all basically oh, the same? It certainly I think has. It's the same things are doing wrong.
1: It certainly has. I, I would characterize myself. <clears throat> Beginning 20 years ago, as being <clears throat> somewhat of a skeptic about whether the climate models could really predict the future of the uh, uh, future uh, environment or you know, the climate of the of the of the, of the planet <clears throat> when we had difficulty predicting the weather. And so, I, I, w- I started out somewhat skeptical, not that
0: climate, uh, that that's the a common of- a common tribe, but one is the one that doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. It's like, it's the difference between not being able to predict where a single, when a single car will pass versus not being able to predict the level of traffic on a street, you know, the level of traffic on a street is pretty predictable, but you know, knowing the exact time a specific car will pass is quite difficult, so.
1: Well, Andrew, now that you say that, <clears throat> it's a little bit different actually. And I, I, I think about climate somewhat differently maybe than you just indicated. Uh, the climate is a complex system, and the complex system is, is subjected to what everybody calls commonly the butterfly effect. And so I, I really think it's really hard to predict the, what the future climate will be. But what we can say, and that's my point of view, is we're taking a hell of a risk, right, that with our only home, by knowing that this thing can go uh, via a butterfly effect and, and, so-called tipping point, and transform the whole climate into a different thing and make it very difficult for us to adjust. So I'm I'm the one who's who, who, who my view, is based on avoiding catastrophic climate change and, and believing that whether or not uh, it's going to, uh, whatever the outcome is going to be, it could be bad. I'm sure by now it looks like it's definitely going to be bad. Uh, but even if, if, no matter what, on a pure uh, risk a, averting basis, it made sense to do whatever you can
0: to avoid going beyond the tipping point. Yeah, I mean, the tipping points is a, is a framing, which I think is interesting, but I'm not, um, I used to be very worried about tipping points. I think I'm perhaps a bit less worried about them now. I think the one that you can't get away from is sea level rise. It's not so much a tipping point as just an irreversible um, you know, loss of uh, the right. status of the climate system right
1: yeah it's irreversible and it, it, as i said it, it it really transforms the whole uh, climate you know it's in the past
0: you've but had tipping points are normally seen as being sort of like surprising and quick whereas you know sea level rise doesn't have to be either surprising or quick right to, to But be in, bad, in it the it pa- right
1: in the past catastrophic events have pushed us into tipping points like super volcanoes and <laughs> various other stuff and, and when they happen, we've you know, this planet looks normal. We've gone through the Holocene, which is an unusual stable climate. But in the past, we've had, uh, you know, basically palm trees on the poles when the sea level was much higher than it is today. And we've had uh, basically a snowball Earth when 80% of the planet was covered with ice. So the range of climates that this planet is capable of experience are enormous. And it's, it's my concern that you know we're very. Our species has evolved in this ecosystem and this climate. And any extreme excursion is going to be very devastating, to say the least. I've really been motivated uh, ever since I uh, started my work and looking about future energy systems. Uh, it's been on a continued path to to try to help make sure that uh, this does not happen to the, to our planet. And I must say that my 20 years of teaching uh, uh, at Columbia in a closing the carbon cycle, as now I, I, I freely admit to becoming a radical in terms of how serious the challenge is and how, uh, how I'm getting growingly impatient with how slow the system is responding, especially with respect to what I believe is something that can uh, help enormously with respect to the, the climate that is carbon dioxide removal uh, strategies uh, generally and uh, direct air capture, in particular.
0: Well, I, th- I think your, your point about the Holocene is really interesting, um, because you've, you've got a situation where um, the, um, uh, the you know humans have been around for two hundred thousand years, but they've only evolved a civilization, as we might understand that civilization, to be during um, a period where um, humans have been in a relatively stable climate, and um, uh, if um, uh, if the climate becomes less stable, as it you know, pretty clearly is becoming less stable, it'd be interesting to see whether our civilization is resistant to it. I think, you know, I'm, I've never been too bothered about the whole kind of, human extinction idea. I don't think that that's that likely we're pretty resilient as a species, but the idea that we can sustain a complex uh, social system and political system in the face of radical climate change or what by human timescales has been radical. Um, uh, it, you know, I think that's an open question. Uh, what, yeah. be uh, Andrew, I, I,
1: I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, I think we're a very resilient species. I think extinction is a little exaggerated, to say the least. But I do agree that are, our 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 system is based on a very stable, uh, 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 a, re- a relatively stable environment, as the recent environmental extremes are demonstrating we're not particularly good and we're very vulnerable to uh, variations from that, and the variations we're now experiencing are relatively small to the ones that would have happened if we had irreversible climate change,
0: and so... Yeah, I, 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 really, I agree, but, but let me let me just challenge that, because I, I, I think that, that bears um, uh, discussion. If you look at previous civilizational collapses that have happened, you know, the Mayans, and things like that, you know, climate change has been a part of that in many cases, but what's have been typically agrarian societies with relatively weak connections to you know any kind of global trade system and uh, nowadays we have situations where you know you have places like las vegas where you're quite sort of large and sophisticated cities are you know far beyond what you could sustain with a conventional agrarian network because we've got a global transport and trade system that keeps these places alive and fed and watered and I think the idea of sudden civilizational collapse or relatively sudden civilizational collapse predicated on climate change um, on a local level is quite difficult now um, to imagine you know you don't end up with a situation where people are so tied to the harvest they have in their local area right and so um, it's perfectly conceivable in my mind that we could have some quite radical changes and people would the global trading and agricultural system would would adapt quite readily to what would otherwise have been sort of civilizational ending events. What do you you think of that?
1: Well, I mean, I don't know exactly how to respond to that. Other than point out there's an interesting fact that most people may not appreciate is that our human species has uh, an unusual, narrow range of DNA variations. Compared to other species, and the reason for that they speculate is that there was a a, a catastrophic event called Mount Hoover that exploded and changed the climate for many years. And
0: wasn't that wasn't that the total volcano? Yes,
1: it it changed the planet, and they speculate that only about ten thousand of us survived, and that's the reason yeah. for our narrow for our narrow uh, a
0: genetic, genetic bottleneck theory. Yeah our narrow genetic variation and so yeah there's, there's fewer there's fewer um there's less genetic variation in humans than there are in uh, a single colony andrew, of mountain gorillas which is kind of interesting
1: yeah and andrew more generally i can put myself in the carrot in the in the camp that i'm pro-human i believe in spite of our many faults that our brain and knowledge is, is has been is an evolutionary response to the flaws in the genetic uh uh, mechanism that driven uh, the uh, the environment before or drove life before, because we can anticipate future events
0: and we can use knowledge to address them, which is exactly what we're doing. So I well, actually, you may be, you may be pro-human, but I, as reviewer too, can assure you that I am uh, distinctly ambivalent about uh, humans in general and and the people that come on this show specifically. So. Um, I will not be being pro or anti. I am entirely without bias um, towards my humans. Um, So um, can you give me... uh, Andrew,
1: just with all due respect, there's a distinction between individuals where I share your point of view, but I'm talking about as a species. uh, uh, You can also be ambivalent to the species. I just want to make that distinction. I'm pro our species. I think our species will do all its... uh, Uh, If you look back in history, there's no other species that's been as successful as our species in terms of biological metrics of lifespan, numbers of people that can be supported. Uh, We're really an amazing, remarkable story in biology. Even more than ants and cockroaches and things like that. Well, in terms of our dominance, for sure. No other species. A lot lot of cockroaches. And so the question becomes uh, when I joined Columbia and did the Earth Institute, I, I developed a point of view, and I really believe this, that it's our role in the overall ecosystem of life to manage the planet and preserve it to avoid all the catastrophic events that in the past have caused enormous extinctions. You know, people have this beautiful Bambi view of, of nature, right? They think that it's always been like this, as we talked about earlier. But if you look back in a geological time frame, it's an amazing sense of a series of, enormous
0: destructions yeah. isn't, isn't, that, isn't that called isn't that called normalcy bias? No, no. I'm no. just saying. I'm I'm just saying I, I, think, I any, think that effect, I think that cognitive flaw is called normalcy bias.
1: Where no, people I don't, think what, that, I don't know what I don't
0: know uh, I'm not afraid of
1: having a bias as long as it's a positive bias. So what I mean good. is
0: like the the the, the, the discussion at your point that you're raising there <laughs> is where people believe that the present is normal, right? And, and no, 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 where?
1: no, that's not my point of view, Andrew. My point of view is quite the opposite. My point of view is where an evolving complex system, nature is, and that we are a a, a, a product of nature and that we uh, fulfill a fatal flaw yeah. in genetics that we couldn't think about the future and prepare for. It would only be dependent on the knowledge of the past. And once you have that thing, I think that we are... As I said, I, I, I personally feel my role is to help uh, uh, minimize the destruction and, and try to preserve uh, uh, life and, and have it evolve in a very positive way. I mean, I agree with you that that's an arbitrary position and you people can hold different points of view, but I just turn out to be both an optimist about our species and I believe that our role is in some sense to be stewards of this planet.
0: Okay, well, um, we've gone on a long and rather circuitous ramble um, at the start of the show, so has almost nothing to do with the subject matter. And I think that's a, certainly good at uh, making sure that any newbies to this podcast are well aware of how indifferent we are to sticking to our brief. Um, but I'd like to at least make a vague nod to the subject matter. Um, so, could you let us know um, a bit more about your current work in CDR? You know, sure. Maybe even some highlights of things that you, sure. um, that you think were important that you've done? rather longer ago.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. I agree with that uh, completely. So I did enjoy the ramble with you. Uh, the uh, So look, I, my effort is really, uh, as I said, I'm still at Columbia, I'm still teaching uh, my courses, but my effort uh, has really been focused on uh, establishing a technology that can remove CO2 from the air. Uh, and at the same time, uh, spending a lot of time working on understanding the problem of the carbon cycle and how much co2 is going to be needed and how much time to avoid these tipping points that we talked about earlier and and I, before i talk about these things i i've admitted before but i'd like to state very clearly that i am basically radicalized by how extreme the situation is from my studies and i'd like to try to share that with the audience because I, as I said, I, it's not that I started out that way. I really started out somewhat of a skeptic, but have now become radicalized and believing that we really don't have as much time as people think. And we, and we got to mobilize uh, all together and try to get enough CDR capacity to avoid uh, going above the uh, so-called tipping points, might be around 450 parts per million in the atmosphere. And that uh, recent events have indicated, you know, it made the tipping point may actually be even lower. So,
0: okay. by, so my, um, efforts, my efforts
1: are divided into two, uh, two, two basic general buckets. As I said, one is developing a technology. i co-founder with uh, of a company called Global Thermostat that's developed a direct air capture technology that we believe can eventually, at scale, capture CO2 at a very affordable
0: cost. Uh, what's your role? There. What's your role in that company, and what's her role? What? What's your role, and what's that?
1: Oh yeah. What's so her I'm, role? I'm, in I'm co-founder, uh, inventor of the technology, uh, as the chief technology officer, and now uh, have become uh, a member of the board and chief science officer of the company.
0: Okay. And and what does Graciela do?
1: She's the CEO, co-founder of the company. So she's the uh, as you may be aware, she's the person who came up with the idea of the carbon market in Kyoto, uh, and uh, uh, has had a long history in in really being concerned about uh, meeting the basic needs of our species and and, and climate. Okay, um, and in so in in our in, our, in, our, in our, our, our guy who's really really provided a lot of our financial support and also leadership is our executive chairman, Edgar Bronfman Jr. Uh, who comes from the famous uh, Bronfman family. Uh, and, and we really have uh, appreciated his uh, uh, very uh, 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 patient support because we've been at this for now for almost, uh, that's and I have been almost at this for 10 or 11 years and for uh, at least nine of them, for if nine and a half or even 10 of them, people thought we were crazy.
0: And it's very, okay. it's, been a, it's been amazing. Well, you're, you're now in a relatively busy market. Uh, I should imagine you're getting taken quite a lot more seriously. Um, right. So can, can you go through? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with the technology in this space, but I'm, for, for whatever reason, I've just never quite managed to get my head around what you're doing at Global Thermostat. So well, talk, talk me through the basics, how me understand you know, the core of what you're doing.
1: Okay. Yeah, okay, Core of our, of our approach, and it is something that we, is really distinctive to us. And of course, we believe uh, gives us uh, uh, an advantage uh, in, in the technology, but I'm sure the others have their case to make as well. And, and more important, I wanna make sure that I do not characterize the other direct air companies as competitors. I really think of them as fellow uh, 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 companions in trying to address this threat that is addressing
0: us and that. I mean right, both surely can't they? I mean like core or them. frenemies is a good way of describing the way that many markets work. You know, people know that, you know, they know, if you're running yeah, a I, petrol I station, make, you tend to know the other people that run petrol stations in your area, right? Yeah. I just want to
1: make clear that, uh, you know, I've offered and we offered to exchange our, have our IP so we could To collectively together develop the the optimal direct air capture company, uh, direct air capture technology. Anyway, back to our technology. Our our distinction is on twofold. The challenge in air capture is that you have to move, have to pass over your so-called contactor uh, 3,000 times as much air as the CO2 you capture. And so... Uh, 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 that the only distinction between air capture and flue gas capture is the concentration, which is 250 times lower uh, roughly. And, and, and that causes in any separation technology, there's a long history that says that the cost, the capital cost of doing something like that scales like one over the concentration. So the people that believed that worked in uh, flue gas capture uh, really thought we were nuts because they said, "Look, we're having trouble. Capturing flue gas is fifty to sixty dollars a ton, and now you want to capture something that's two hundred fifty times lower in concentration and claim you can do it for under fifty dollars a ton. So, uh, yeah, that, that that simple, that, that, though, that is plain. And, and, and I'm going to try to explain to you and your audience why it's not the case that that uh, capture has to be that much more difficult than flue gas capture. And I actually believe in the real world it may actually be easier because food gas is so contaminated with impurities. But in any case, so the, the basic idea is goes the following. If you think about air capture, the only step that's just different in the from a carbon point of view is the first step of taking the CO2 out of the air. Once you've collected the CO2, purifying it, pressurizing it, shipping it, using it, it doesn't care whether it came from the air or from food gas. So all the downstream steps The costs of them are the same for flue gas as they are for air. And so one of the first logical uh, flaws in people assuming what they did is that the first step, uh, if the first step is small in cost compared to the the later steps, then the ratio of flue gas to air capture costs will go to zero as those downstream costs become uh, 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 dominated. Now, so that means the only thing you have to worry about is getting the, the cost of the first step to be low. And so the, what I came up with in our technology was to use the same device as you have in the catalytic converter of your car, which for those who don't understand what's composed of, is composed of a, a small channel, rectangular channels that are about a couple millimeters in an opening and have about a tenth of a millimeter walls. Those devices were designed for your car because your car, your can, can engine cannot. That's a, called a
0: prismatic bed, isn't
1: it? It's, well, it's called a monolithic contact.
0: Yeah, but isn't it called a prism? That's pr- prismatic bed because it's the same. It's the same. It's got the same section right. all the way through. All right. And so, so from, you...
1: from a physics perspective, these parallel walls, uh, and their long parallel walls, allow what is known as a distinctive flow called laminar flow. And so the, the air can go in there and have very regular flow, and and, and and laminar flow means that you only have resistance at the wall, and it's only the, the rigidity of the air that is causes resistance. And so what happens is the vol- the dependence of pressure drop or resistance to flow, which is going to be the major cause of the of the uh, of the first step. You have to push so much air through scales like linearly with the velocity. Whereas all other contact is used by uh, other technologies, their, their, their resistance scales like the power of velocity to 2.2 or 2.7. And so this okay, allows... but let me, let
0: me just Let me just sort of challenge that because I've, I've often wondered about this. So, the advantage of the turbulent contractors is that they stir up the air, right? And so, if you're absorbing your material yeah. onto the walls, the, the, Andrew, the...
1: Andrew,
0: Andrew, you're right.
1: But they've studied that that the extra contacting from turbulence compared to the extra pressure drop it creates, you don't win. Because remember, you need contacting per pressure drop because you have to push so much air through there that you're limited to extremely low pressure drop if you figure it out, under 200 pascals. Okay. All right? But but you're putting your finger on exactly the right issue. And this is the amazing thing. So what we're saying here is, you're, you're getting the air through at low pressure drop in this laminar flow regime. So the practical consequence of that is our technology operates at five meters per second, whereas most of the other technologies operate at one to one and a half meters per second input of air. Now, the magic thing, you, as you just indicated, and uh, that was a very good comment, if people follow this and say, hey, you know, it's great you got low pressure drop, but you're, most of the air is passing through without touching the walls. How are you going to capture the CO2? Well, it turns out that this is the magic of this is that in these small rectangular channels, two millimeters diameter, you have a perpendicular force called diffusion. And so if you can maintain in those porous walls that every CO2 that hits the wall is picked up and immobilized so you can maintain a zero concentration at the wall, then you can have a maximum gradient for diffusion. And it turns out Amazing because of the small distance. Anybody can calculate this is taking the normal diffusion constant of CO2 in the air. The so-called mass transfer of CO2 to the walls of our uh, uh, contactor are three times faster than than the um, others.
0: Either direct contact I, that, that, or must that must only that most only work at very small with very small channel diameters because the um yeah, the diffusion is the, the the molecules diffuse when they sort of randomly move around, and it's a temperature-based effect as well, isn't it? So if you were using your technology in Antarctica or somewhere like that, for example, then um, it wouldn't work as well because the mean velocity of the molecules in the gas is going to be substantially lower, right? Sure. It, I, mean, I mean you've got a thermal limit on your process. Does it not work if you go to colder climates and try and do it? Or or well, do, it, is it's that not, not a practical I mean, difference that matters?
1: Air, air does not freeze at, at, at Oh at, I know, but but
0: the, but the diffusion is slower. Oh yeah, but it, 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 where it, you have yeah, but slower it has, moving. But
1: diffusion, right? at least diffusion and normal diffusion has a very small tenor, very small temperature dependence.
0: Okay, all right.
1: But but you're right. I'm not, but, uh, so, but let me just summarize, let me just summarize. What, happens, what you told me. What happens is, however, the lower the temperature, the more effective you are in capturing the CO2, but the less it fusion. But let's, let's not get into the nuances at the moment.
0: Okay, but, but let, let me just, Thanks. I just want to sort of circle back to the basics, because some people won't be that yes. familiar with the technology, so, so what so, you're doing, so, you've got, hold on, well, hold on, let, let, let me just ask the, ask the questions, because it's important that people understand the fundamentals, right, but what you're describing is a sorbent-based system, right, so you're not using a reagent like, uh, yeah, uh, I, I,
1: let, like Ed, carbon engineering. I was just going to explain, yes, uh, let me just try to explain, so the, what, we, what I just said is we have to maintain a zero concentration. Of CO two at the wall of this channel, and the way we've done that is we've engineered in the porous the walls a system of porosity that enables the CO two in the walls to diffuse and find a sorbent, which in our case is uh, uh, is PEI, an amine sorbent, and have that sorbent capture it and immobilize it and take it out of the air, uh, take it out of the gas stream. Therefore. With allowing us to continue to maintain zero, uh, zero concentration at the walls.
0: And so, so these, your sorbent, but your sorbent's solid, right? So it's a cyclical process. Is that the case? Uh, sorbent is, is polyethylene uh, which is a, this is an amine. Yeah, but it's a solid sorbent, right? It's The yeah, matrix it's, is either coated in or sorbent. made of the sorbent. It's,
1: right? a, it's a solid sorbent embedded in the uh, in the porosity of the walls. Okay, fine. Um, right. and, 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 and our our whole accomplishment was been to engineer that porosity so that the, the time of the technology is limited by the rate of diffusion of the wall. So we can capture, our technology is now at the state that in a six inch deep, just six inches deep monolith contactor, we can capture 60 to, the 60% of the CO2 that's coming in. To give you a okay. comparison, and I don't mean it's, uh, it's just a difference in technology, but if you look at what, for example, the contactor of Carbon Engineering, their contactor is is 10 meters, or five meters.
0: Yeah, time. and then Kleinworks is about two or three meters, isn't it? Right. So you've got a very, so you basically, what you're describing is something which is not that dissimilar from a, um, uh, like a potato waffle that you might get in a um, uh, in a uh, cafe or whatever that you you have the waffle with holes in it that allows right. airs to pass through like a tennis racket right and you, your waffle is about six inches thick oh. and then you've got the waffle you can think of the air going through like the ice cream pouring through the waffle as it melts and you're saying that it kind of sucks out one of the components from the ice cream and it gets stuck to the waffle and then the rest of the ice cream goes all the way through right
1: yeah uh, <laughs> That's that's an interesting metaphor. I've never thought about apple uh, metaphor before. But look, all I'm just saying. Then so our 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 approach, as I said, is with this, uh, with this five meters per second uh, uh, movement, and with the uh, with the uh, with the uh, with the, uh, with the uh, contact that we have, the cost of moving that air, the energy cost of moving that air. That's seven cents per kilowatt hour is uh, under five dollars a ton. If it's two cents a kilowatt hour, like for le- uh, renewable electricity, well, uh, it becomes uh, basically uh, less than two dollars. So we have. How do you do? Up. How do you do the diesel
0: step? How do you get the? Because you've got to purge your contactor, right?
1: Uh, uh, what I'm saying is, we have by the system I just described, we have reduced. The main cost of the difference between flue gas capture and air capture for being the movement of all this air compared to the movement of much smaller amount of flue gas. And we've been able to accomplish that uh, I, uh, with this contactor such that it is not a dominant
0: cost. Okay, but, but, but that's not the whole story, is it? I mean, the big energy guzzler like, in the process and, is and the region step. It's not quite
1: the whole story, right? But that's the first part of the story. But the first part of the story means that one has to ensure that one get get, get, get all the benefits of this very efficient uh, immobilization of the carbon. And so we have downstream uh, steps as well that involve our technology where we can very quickly uh, uh, evaporate the CO2 by using a direct contact of the steam coming in the same direction as the air. And when the steam comes in, when, excuse me, when the steam comes in, it condenses on the walls of the contactor. It gives up the amazing uh, amount of energy from the latent heat of water and it converts from steam to to liquid. So we're able to also, remove CO2 in one-tenth the time that it takes us to absorb it. And so this means that our capital plant is is a very efficiently absorbing CO2 from the air. That is, it spends
0: 90% of the time absorbing it from the air, and only 10% in collecting it. it I, I do want you to sell me your technology, but it's also important that you, um, that you respond I'm not, to the... I'm not, Andrew, you asked me to describe my technology. I'm not
1: trying to sell it. I want to be very clear, again, that I am I feel that we're all in pursuit of a common thread, that I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm, I'm trying to explain uh, how our technology works and what are some of the features it has. I'm sure others can describe features of their technology. Yeah. And so
0: let, so let, me, let, let me just sort of challenge the central points you've made. You, you basically said that your contactor is very efficient because um, there's a low pressure drop over it and therefore it takes less energy and your sorbent is very efficient at absorbing and recharging. So the sorbent side is, um, and the, the contact and sorption step is very efficient, but that's, that's important, but it's not overwhelmingly important. And the big, the big issue with direct air capture is the desorb step. That's where you know most of your energy costs is end what, up getting used up. Is what? What is The, the point? desorb step. The what step? the desorb step when you remove the carbon dioxide from from the sorbent.
1: yeah but i'm just trying to tell you that's correct but i'm doing that efficiently by having you know, using the late heat of steam and doing it quickly and i'm and and and, and the, what you're saying is how much energy does it cost right so the, the the energy cost of that removal is determined by two factors and just two factors That is number one. What is the heat of evaporation of the CO two from the sorbent, and that's only two kilojoules, gigajoules per ton. Then the only other main thing is is gigajoules,
0: gigajoules per ton. Yeah, I was going to say yeah, six orders of magnitude out. Is it?
1: Is is the latent heat of our sorbent right, and then uh, the uh, the rest is sensible heat, and and we're in the process of greatly reducing that sensible heat. The component of our technology and will be something that we'll be working on one imagines that uh, uh, not uh, and someday we'll get to something like there's no reason not to be able to get to something like five or five let's say five gigajoules of heat and so now the important thing for your audience to understand is the following what is it how does one compare five gigajoules of heat so five gigajoules of heat can be compared to the following thing natural gas, when it's burned, it liberates one ton of CO2 for every 19, 19 gigajoules of heat it recovers. So this means that our technology that requires five gigajoules, and, and that number is not that different from some of the other technologies, that uh, the radio capture generally that will need about five gigajoules of heat. That technology means that you can burn natural gas. This is this is very we, we've published something on this called negative uh, gas fired power plants, negative carbon gas fired power So you have a you have a you have a natural gas power plant, you burn natural gas, it liberates 19 gigajoules of heat for use for every ton of CO2 emits. You take that that natural gas that you burn, put it through a bright cycle turbine that will, will single cycle turbine that will take uh, 33% of the energy and converted to electricity. That means out of 19.5 gigajoules, you have 12 gigajoules left. 12.5. Yeah, I mean, similar so numbers to carbon engineering. Andrew, Andrew, please, yeah. Andrew, just let me finish this, please. It's very important. So we have 12.5 gigajoules left. That means for that gas power gas plant, if I use direct air capture to capture both air, one one equivalent of CO two from the air and captured its flue gas as well. So I'm capturing uh, uh, one component of the natural gas flue gas using a flue gas uh, technology that we have, and combining it with one uh, one amount of natural gas of CO two from the air. That power plant now is producing uh, for every kilowatt of electricity is producing negative carbon. That if I sequester, I can have this natural gas power plant help clean up the planet. At the same time, yeah. at the same time that it's producing energy. So natural gas actually, when you sequester the CO2, is better for the climate than a solar panel on your roof that just produces net neutral electricity.
0: Yeah. So I
1: mean so well, so people- so people talk about the energy needs of, of direct air capture. But if you make it from this perspective, it's really very efficient with respect to the amount of energy that's released.
0: With respect to combustion, and yeah, that- I mean you're using the waste heat, right? Because the thermal exactly. regime of the turbines exactly. is it, exactly you're rejecting heat uh, between right. a sort of 120, 150 degrees and eighty degrees, roughly, yeah. right? Yeah, we we
1: use we use hundred degree heat, so that's what I mean. You're that, that's correct, Andrew. So what happens in 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 the cogeneration unit, like we're, we're we're describing, you take the high heat and very efficiently direct electricity out of it and that's what gets you about 34% electricity. And then you take the 66% of the energy that's left, which is lower temperature uh, steam and heat, and you convert that into, uh, you collect that heat, and you convert that into heat that can be used to remove CO2 from the, uh, uh, both from the food gas and the atmosphere. Now, one of the things that, that I, uh, that we're in the process of developing uh, is a technology, that enables us in a single machine to both capture CO2 from the air and capture CO2 from gas. And
0: this okay. is going to- I think carbon engineering works like that, doesn't it? They, they right. do that sort of double bubble approach.
1: Yes, the, 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 they do it in, in a different sense than we do it. Yes, that, that's true. But, uh, okay. but, uh, but, uh, but uh, as I said, they're doing it because they have to capture their own uh, emissions. Right. We're, 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 our, 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 our technology is because they, because they need high temperature heat. They, they, they there's a, they're in
0: direct. Into yeah, they're, burn, the they're burning specially for it. Whereas Climeworks, you're, better, you're much more similar to Climeworks. The Orca plant from Climeworks is launched. Today. Right. Well, uh, and they're and big, and you know, their big launch and we're stealing their thunder by talking to a different company. But hey, uh, right. I don't care. Yeah,
1: Again, I want to be very clear. All these efforts I very supportive of, and I, as I said, I'm somehow trying to find ways that we can uh, exchange our intellectual property so that each of us can develop an optimal uh, approach uh, get the optimal result from our technologies. But you know, if I if I might, Andrew, I'd really, as I said before, I'd really like to share with your audience the uh, why I think uh, we're in such dire, thing and we need. Uh, direct air capture uh, and and we need to start to scale it now uh, because that's really I think the most important thing that we as a scientific community have to come up have have to come to terms with as you know from the 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 blog that you uh, uh, administer and 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 really run very well and
0: I really enjoy uh, let me just put a shout out for that exact blog so that's the carbon dioxide removal group. I think you're referring to. Now, technically, I don't actually administer it, but uh, I do um, uh, have a small whip round every month and uh, pay a virtual assistant to uh, go and round up the latest news stories, and I help them a bit with that. And the end result is that we like to think we cover almost all of the, uh, you know, tweets and stories and. Uh, news and papers that come out on the subject. Obviously, we'll always miss something, but uh, we do try to to be pretty comprehensive and pretty rapid as well. So if people want to keep abreast of the news on the subject, carbon dioxide removal Google Group and its sister group, which I do run, um, which is the geoengineering Google Group, um, is a great way of keeping on top of that.
1: I I always, I I, I recognize that Greg Rao runs the other one and you run this one. Uh, But I was generally saying, I think that these are great platforms for stimulating discussion and dialogue. And I just wanted to share with the, especially with your geoengineering uh, colleagues, that uh, why I think that, uh, uh, which I'm sure they, are, 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 many of them already understand, is that uh, the, 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 what I've been involved in is uh, with, uh, with some colleagues at Georgia Tech, and 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 uh, and and Klaus Lackner at Arizona State, Matthew Radeloff at at, at uh, Georgia Tech uh, is really looking at and sort of out, looking at an analysis of the various emission scenarios and the various uh, 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 predictions of how much CO two is going to be in the atmosphere the different budgets, and really I mean looking which as a result of just looking at that. Uh, Uh, and and we actually held a workshop uh, summit called the DAC mobilization which the readers can look up and and refer to where we really have a lot of this information that we generated but in general we've come to the conclusion if we don't start now and double our DAC capacity every year almost uh, which is an unprecedented level we're not going to be able to avoid going above the tipping point And, and 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 therefore it's really is important that we find a way to get into that uh, mobilization stage as soon as possible. And okay. the 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 uh, the I hearing people talk about plans of a let's do a uh, b uh, you know net zero in 2050. The game is over by 2050. I but the the we will. Go, the floor in all these net zero scenarios is they fail to tell you how far above the tipping points you're going to get before 2100. Like they just talk about where we are today, where we'll be in 2100, and if you're a net zero in 2050, they avoid the crucial information as to what is going to be the, the peak amount of CO2 in the atmosphere you're going to have. And is that or is that not going above the tipping point? Many of those. At zero scenarios will have you well above 450 in the 550 uh, range. And so uh, really, uh, that's one of the major flaws. The second floor, I think, in, in people's thinking about this, and it really is prompting uh, me here together with my colleague to uh, Nadia Koch to do another summit on uh, energy equity, is the fact that people, in, in the West in particular, talk about, let's use less energy. Let's, they certainly talk about efficiency, but they talk about let's consume less energy. Well, that's fine for them to say, but there are 3 billion or 2 billion people living in energy poverty. And I would say that a, a, the second challenge as the recent pandemic has shown uh, very clearly to climate in this century is equity, in particular energy equity. So you can see the thing that's prevented global accord is the, the debate between the developing countries that need to provide for their energy poor and the developed countries that are talking about changing their lifestyle and all that stuff that's important for uh, for addressing climate threat. But my point of view, you can't expect people not to provide the basic needs for their people. So it's a non-starter if you're not going to have as, party a solution that the developing world achieves energy equity with the developed world in this century. It's not sustainable from a social stability point of view to have such an extreme inequity existing in, in people's access to energy.
0: Okay, I, I, I agree with I agree with you on that, uh, Peter. But uh, you know, I do want to slip a few more questions in. Um, so there, are, I'm, I'm sure there's a few things that the re, uh, readers, I always call them readers, uh, very annoying, but never mind. Um, I'm sure there's a few things that the listeners will want to know about your company. So um, you've recently um, had some quite big news, haven't you? I think you uh, um, announced either a partnership or an investment. Um, so what what was the story with that? Because for for quite a long time. Um, global service that was seen as perhaps being a kind of poor cousin of the climate and of the the Commodore sort of removal world and Climeworks and um, carbon engineering had had rather more success at getting corporate partnerships and stuff like that. Um, But I think you've recently kind of caught up haven't you so can you tell us about that progress that you've been made.
1: Okay, I'm not sure why you are interested in the progress of our company, as opposed to the the state of our planet.
0: Well, I mean, I I am um, interested in the state of the planet, but at the end of the day, you are um, a co-founder of the company, and I think people are gonna wanna learn about
1: the company. I I was just in the middle of completing the story about the fate of our planet, and I'd be happy if I could just complete it for a second. I'll be glad to go to talk about our company again. So, uh, just to finish the story. So, uh, so I, I think any solution that doesn't address the uh, energy equity problem is a non-starter. It will not happen politically. It doesn't make sense anyway. Matter of fact, in the new summit that we're holding, and I encourage your viewers to look, to find a way they can join join us uh, uh, in a, uh, in October uh, when it's uh, going to be held. Uh, we are really come up with a, a lot of experts and made the sort of very interesting observation that instead of energy equity being a, a nice to add on to uh, or to think about to address climate change. If you make it the important objective to achieve, you actually facilitate and you create a nice positive uh, feedback between meeting the energy needs of the poor and addressing the threat
0: of climate change. And so I just
1: wanted to introduce that
0: yeah, no, new I, concept. I get that point, and I don't disagree with it. And the reason I didn't interrupt you then was because you didn't really say anything I didn't agree with. So I'll just let you um, cover the subject, but let's circle back if we can to uh, hear sure. about, you know, you and your company, because I think that's what you know, people are very familiar with the wider landscape, but they're not so familiar with you and your company. So um, if I could just ask you to address the point that I made a moment ago, of the yeah. progress so, that your company's so, but, made, and, you and, seem to have and, caught and up look, rather recently.
1: Yeah. I, I, I got your question. So there's several, there's several answers to that. First of all, I spent and we spent uh, the first five or six or seven years, a lot of effort trying to convince others that direct air capture technology was relevant. Eventually I had enough experiences of, of knowing how difficult it was to convince people of an improbable idea that we decided to stop really having a really what I'll call public relations effort and just go and do the technology. And so we've been hunkered down and, and and really focused on. And we've had many partnerships with, with which don't get announced with with, uh, with companies like BSF, Corning, and Siemens, and 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 and
0: all, or lots of other. So these partnerships, are they, what are they? Are these to provide CO two for processes, or are they just no, development they're, partnerships? They're, they they
1: they're, they're, they're working with us to help. The, either develop our absorbents, help develop our
0: contactor. Okay, help, so they're, suppl- they're supplier partnerships as opposed to customers. I'm more interested in terms of the you know the customers and the engagement that you've had from them. Yeah, uh, but and but Andrew,
1: so- Andrew, with all due respect, the customers are is the planet from our point of view. Our company is not dedicated to customers. It's dedicated and determined to address the threat of climate change. well someone's got to pay
0: you right so you know where where Um, is is your initial um, money coming from i mean like if you look at um carbon engineering for example um they've got um uh uh, a a plant which is being set up um pale blue dot um and um in partnership and they've taken investment from occidental so that's their sort of commercial stack at the moment at least for their most recent plant. i'd just like to hear more about you know the comparable developments in terms of investment and um, commercialization that you've had on your technology because i'm sure people are really interested to hear
1: yeah andrew first of all okay i understand that and um, let me try to be direct so on the investment side till now we have taken zero investment from institutional investors or companies we have taken i mean we have one little company but that's not it we've done it mostly through private investors so which we we we're concerned about the influence that ownership of our company by uh by corporate entities would play on it so we've tried to avoid that. so that's number one so we we've we've had many investors of name brand people lots of uh, people have invested in us but it's private investors and not and not institutional investors number one number two we 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 have we have focused on as i said development joint development agreements, because we're focused on, this is a very distinctive feature of us. We are not focused on getting something to work as soon as possible. We're focused on getting a technology that can address the threat of climate change. And so we're talking and focused our efforts. You know, I had, we had, our company had in 2010 or 2012 actually, had operating at the Stanford Research Institute Eight, a version of a technology that could function at the same cost level as, for example, Climeworks is claiming today. But I decided not to stick with that technology and instead because I understood some of the limitations and where it would be made better. And so, and what, what and before, was that technology? That technology involved a, a, a single bed moving from absorption to regeneration.
0: Up and okay, down. Yeah, the I've, tel- I've, I've explored that a moving bed concept when I went to see uh, Climeworks, I was uh, kind of imagining that they could split their pack uh, bed contactors into something a little bit like um, uh, the, uh, a, re- a revolver, you know, a yeah. revolver pistol, well, right? So, and so you've we, we have, got-
1: We have made that transition uh, many years ago. And so our machine now has one regeneration bed servicing 10 contacted modules. And and does the does the material move around or is it a yes yeah, it, a it, it moves around in, in like a if you like around right okay and you have one so stationary like kind of you have a stationary gun basically you have a stationary regeneration box and it regenerates the CO two in ninety seconds and it takes nine hundred seconds for our CO two at five meters per second to build up and get full okay. so so it's only it's ninety percent of the time in the air and only 10% of the time to generate it. Okay. So in any case, back to the partnerships. So we've developed joint development agreements uh, with people that uh, want to help scale our technology. Uh, one that's been in the news quite a bit is of course our, our partnership with Exxon. Where they have uh, you know, been very helpful and provided their expertise in scaling uh, uh, and working with them has been really
0: very positive. What's, what's Exxon's motivation for that? Because I mean, a lot of people would kind of, uh, you know, even people who aren't that negative about um, uh, oil companies in general, they might sort of argue that they're supplying a product that's by available, you know, to the public by popular demand. Um, they might criticize Exxon's record of climate disinformation and political manipulation, which has been, you know, at least arguably worse than others. Um, you know, do, do you think that this is a good faith investment by um, Exxon, or do you do you have concerns about their uh, um, about their motivation? Would you sort of see it as being um, uh, greenwashing, or or uh, at least in a possibility of greenwashing? How do you how do you feel about their investment?
1: Oh, uh, so let me be clear. Look, I understand that, and for that reason, I, as I said, we did not approach Exxon. Exxon approached us, but they have a uh, vice president of R and DJ uh, uh, Swarup, who's uh, who, who convinced me that Exxon was indeed a... Uh, 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 An honest a, broker,
0: right. uh, a, 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 a company formed of upright and uh, fine fellows, and no, no, um, he no, had no, no, no concerns no. about yeah. taking their money.
1: Yeah, no, uh, no, he wasn't trying to say that. He was just trying to say is that they understood that there was a threat and a need for change and therefore they're they're. Well, like, yeah, I
0: understand. They I understand. They have. There's a threat, but the, the question I've got is that you know, if you if you take a company, um, you know, for all of their sins, other oil majors have not been, you know, associated with quite the same level of disinformation as Exxon has, at least to my own knowledge. Now, you know, you could accuse well, BP uh, of greenwashing, uh, but
1: Andrew, I don't want to be an apologist for Exxon here, but, but let me just tell you something.
0: Well, aren't uh, they perhaps uh, paying you to be an apologist for them? I mean, is, isn't that what they're perhaps doing by funding the company? Is, is no, trying to launder look, their reputation?
1: Look, I'm, as you can tell, I'm as aggressive as you are in terms of my interactions. So I'm not the person that you want to get close and cuddly to. Uh, and so I'm just telling you my own. You can, do, you can make whatever assessment you want. But I'm very critical of, the, of, of everything that I do. And so I'm just telling you telling you several things. Number one, I worked at, uh, at Exxon back in the 80s. And when this thought of disinformation occurred and I didn't have the faintest idea about climate change.
0: I, and as a matter of fact- uh, It worked you know, then. What? Their programs worked. I mean, ExxonMobil had, um, you know, really advanced climate change um, science. Um, Uh, program Uh, back in I think the 70s right but let let me uh, let me just explain let me just explain my concern right and I'm not you know this isn't me having a go at you but what I'm trying to understand here is that, that is that there is at least a risk is there not that You've got a, com- a company here which has in, um, invested or formed a partnership with your firm. No, but, um, but, but,
1: but, but Andrew, there's no. I think
0: reason it's, because there's a well, hold on, hold on. Of, look, no, it's really, really on. important. i I'm hold, hold on, Andrew. Please, please, please. I, it's really important. I get my questions across. And I, you know, I don't feel in, in, in many cases. I've just let you um, kind of follow your own track, and, and I've, I've stepped back here. But um, uh, in. in more than I have in most other interviews, but you know, I, I do insist that you address this point. My concern is that by partnering up with Exxon, that you are perhaps, at least in the view of some people, not necessarily my own personal view, but it's only fair to put the question to you, that you are perhaps allowing yourself and your company um, to be used as a way of Exxon um, laundering um, and improving what is a very bad reputation amongst um, uh, the climate community, uh, in my view, perhaps quite rightly, um, and um, they are attempting to improve their reputation, but it's not clear to me necessarily that this is sign of a, a wholesale and deep change in the organization. And so it could at least be argued, and this is the question I would like you to address, as to whether what you're doing with Exxon is part of a reputation laundering process for them, or whether it's part of an honest transformation of the company. What's your view on that? So
1: let me, let me address two things directly. Number one, uh, they're not investing in us, right? As opposed to other air capture companies that have taken investment, we're not investing in us, so they're not affecting our, our program at all, number one. Number two, they have, it has the highest reputation technically compared to all the other world companies. Everybody will tell you that the standard. They invest the most in R&D compared to other people. And so, I, and I work there, and I understand the excellence of the people they have there. So we're getting very excellent support, very excellent input. So we're, as a company, benefiting from their excellence. They have a team of about 10 internal people working with us, all kinds of mechanical, chemical engineering expertise, and they are, they are helping us develop our technology. Now, why they are doing it, what is going on, and therefore, right? whether they are sincere or greenwashing, I can't read their minds, right? But they are making a real commitment of resources that is having a real positive impact without in any way influencing what our company does. So-
0: Okay, well, I'm glad that you've taken the time to answer that question. There's another important point that I'd like to put to you. Um, I've seen some extremely negative press um, on the internal management of your organization, Uh, not specifically about you, but there was a very, very critical article about Graciella. Now, she's not somebody that I've, as I recall, spoken to. I don't have any strong personal opinions about her from knowing of her work. Um, I've only kind of heard secondhand through the media about her management skills and style, but more so than anybody else in this field that I'm aware of, there has been... um, you know, very frank and forthright criticism in the media about how she has conducted herself running the company. Now, I assume that you're aware of some of that press and uh, I, 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 you know, I, I don't have a view as to whether that's correct or not. I, you know, I've, I've done no, I've made no effort to, you know, to research that and to verify the stories. But it, how, how do you, how do you feel about that press? You know, do you feel that it's an accurate portrayal of the company? Do you think it's just, um, uh, dirt digging journalism, you know, what, what's your, what's your perspective on, on the very negative press that has at times, um, uh, touched on your company's activity.
1: Well, look, it's, but I will say the problem is that, uh, uh the, the press, as you know, uh, in that article were quoted, maybe one or two, uh, employees who had left this company and left it on, on various, uh, uh, terms and so uh, that's number one. The sources for their uh, their the, the 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 point that you're focusing on really is uh, one or two employees. Number two is I've worked in industry uh, for many years and I've read the biographies of Steve Jobs and and of and of all these leaders who are really ahead of their time and and they're not fun to work with. They're driven people who are who are driven to have an outcome, they're, and they drive their people very hard. So if you just read the biographies of all these people, they're they're impossible to work, with. but they get the job done. And so number two, so that's number two. And so that certainly is fits into the category of her life being something that she's ahead of her time. Not to mention, you know, being a woman in a man's world. And so there's, there 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 is certainly something in her drive that will cause people to have the kind of reaction that one would have. As I said, if you wrote an, an inside story of what it's like to work with Elon Musk, I'm sure you can come up with similar stories. You've seen it through the, the enormous amount of variation in the C-suite and Tesla over the years. So, uh, you know, the technology is a human enterprise. It has uh, all kinds of people in it. and that, and so, so I guess the bottom line. I, my response is the following: It's a combination of uh, Grazela's relentless style of trying to uh, 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 achieve something and uh, the distortions in perspective that journalism creates.
0: But you have confidence, do you, in her ability to be a you know a reliable and stable and. Um, uh, uh an a- appropriate manager making appropriate management decisions as the company grows well
1: uh, 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 let me answer this is a, 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 a straightforward in the fond way both Mat and I have recognized that uh, the we've taken this company as founders and as academics and as uh, 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 as far as we can go, and that we are our company is undergoing a transition now to, as many companies do, to bringing in more people who've had more experience with commercializing a technology and developing it. But we're going to do it in such a way, which will, you know, sort of is evolving, and we'll be, you know, talking about it more directly uh, towards the end of this year. But we're going to do it in a way to preserve the company's dedication on climate change. And so I think you'll find out that we're both acknowledging that um, that there's a need for a change in leadership as one leaves the phase of innovation, right? And goes into the phase of delivery and and scaling commercialization.
0: And so- Yeah, so I mean, that's a route that many tech founders are encouraged to take. And I've seen that happen. Um, in various different ways. So um, the Mark Zuckerberg, uh, there was a, a attempted boardroom coup against him early on in the, uh, uh, the life of Facebook. I've seen friends who are CEOs of companies who've moved, been moved out of their role when um, uh, venture capital comes in. So you know, that, 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 the process you're describing is a very real one. I think Cisco also lost its founding team. So you're not describing something that, that is unusual, but nevertheless, it can be a traumatic process for the company and this uh, the the onset of a new management team can be seen as Andrew,
1: a... Andrew, the one thing that distinguishes our company, I think, from the others at this point, is that when these institutional investors come in or the larger company make this change, the founders still will own the controlling share by far of the company. So the, the other companies, that, when the institutional investors have come in, the founders have lost control and have given it up to the institutional investors. That's not our situation, and so okay. it's going to be much—it's going to be much less dramatic for us because we I mean, maintain a board control of uh, in terms of stock ownership of the company. And okay. so, so you're think,
0: any, you're seeing a management change, but not an ownership change. It's not a case of being forced forced out or anything like that. It's a case of you know recognizing that you need extra talent and you're creating a team to manage your investment in the company, right? Exactly. So, <laughs> okay, fine. Well, look, I mean, that, that's a perfectly reasonable set of answers. Um, I, I just want to understand, um, uh, perhaps in closing, although other things might occur to me, um, the, the investment status of your company, are you currently seeking investment and what's the company value? at? Or do you share public numbers or, or is this something that you only share to people, you know, once you've vetted no. them? Yeah,
1: um, I, I don't think in general one shares investment numbers. And even after they occur, but, okay, uh, well, fine. I mean, my, um, the, I think all, the, all the, I can, all I can say is that, you know, as you can imagine us having had the foresight to spend, uh, eight or nine, like the other air capture companies, uh, but we started, you know, uh, relatively early compare to some of them, the, uh, uh, we're being rewarded now. With reasonable market evaluations uh, relative to our stage of development, because of the recognition that there's an increased need for our technology.
0: Okay. And do you have what what stage of technology readiness are you at? Do you have a working plant? You know, uh, uh, I don't. I think you're beyond the kind of in silico stage, aren't you? So talk to me about how much deployment or you know which development stage you're at. Say it again, Andrew, I
1: didn't hear you, I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, um, how developed is your technology? Because I mean, Climework's Orca plant opens today. I don't think you're quite adv- as advanced as that, are you? But I'd like to understand how far along you are in terms of the development and design and build process of your technology.
1: Right, so you may be aware of your, uh, listeners may be aware of that we are involved in a, in, a, in a project down in Chile to convert wind energy into gasoline for Porsche in Germany, and this involves a a, a project with uh, with Siemens, with uh, Exxon Mobil, and with, uh, with with as I said with Volkswagen and Porsche, and, and the German government. And that, that project is a uh, we're going to have uh, this next in the next next year going to be operating uh, a, a commercial pilot plant uh, scheduled to go to phase two of 200,000 tons of CO2 in 2023, or 2022, all the way up to 20 million tons of CO2 by uh, 2027. And so, 20 million tons of CO2 is about, uh, uh, is about uh, uh,
0: uh, 2 billion gallons of gasoline. Okay. And so, so you've got. Um, so you're capturing gasoline. You're capturing the carbon dioxide to be made into gasoline. And you, right. who are you partnering with that? Because you're not an e-fuels company, like you. So is it Sunfire or? Um, As I told you, what, we're,
1: we're partnering with AME, Siemens, uh, Exxon, and uh, and and uh,
0: uh Yes, yeah, so I understand. But 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 none of those are specific e-fuel manufacturers. And I wonder if there was also a company in the mix that did the e-fuel manufacturing or whether this is the R&D arm of the company that you're describing. No, no.
1: The, the step is very clear. You capture CO2 from the air. You have windmills that capture the wind energy down there that's unbelievable, that generates electricity at under $0.02 cents a kilowatt hour. Yeah. And then you use the electricity to do electrolysis that semen provides uh, to get the hydrogen. Then you take a, uh, a, uh, a catalyst that converts co2 and hydrogen directly into methanol that's a well-established catalyst The you provided by a u.s firm and then you take the methanol and use the the exon methanol to gasoline uh to create uh, a well-established process to produce gasoline and then is you ship it,
0: the gasoline is that into is that fischer-trop or is that mtg i can't remember the name of that process it's, it's mtg right okay fine okay well that's i mean it's useful to sort of see how this will together in the round. Um, right. I think um, yeah, and, and I, given we, a... we,
1: we have we have a, a series of other people that we are uh, have uh, are having discussions with. But as I said, you know, uh, I I, I want to be very. I want to try to clarify one version that I may have left uh, uh, that may be misguided. Uh, we believe that uh, that there is, as I said, this renewable energy and materials economy where. You take CO2 from the air and hydrogen from water and your sun, and you make all sorts of hydrocarbon products, carbon fiber, plastics, polymers, uh, you name it, cement, concrete, that there's a whole industrial aspect of it. So we are in that sense, uh, 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 commercially focused, but a really primary objective is that that's, that's, a, that's a means to an end. The end is climate change protection, and I can't stress enough that that's what our firm is, and, and its founders are dedicated to. That's that's determined our fundraising strategy. Why we have till now uh, stayed with individuals. Why we've had relationships with companies like Exxon that cannot have any influence on what we do or don't do. Uh, they have no say in what we do or don't do, and we've tried to be able. And why in this transition? we're going to uh, be ensure that we can focus, continue our focus on climate change.
0: Okay, so, well, that's a, a nice summary of what your passion is and what your company does. Um, so it's a, a good note to end on. Um, is there anything that you feel that we haven't covered or, or, or do, you, do you think that's a relatively good um, segue around the issues relevant to your um, your company at the moment, you know, this, this time that we're in, um, is, this, is it, have we covered what's relevant, what's important, what's happening for you?
1: Well, look, uh, as I said, uh, uh, I think we may have covered the company uh, 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 and uh, your questions were very helpful in doing that uh, uh, fairly effectively. I would just like the, again to use the, this, uh, this forum to restate again that I think We're as a industry and as a country and as a world at a point where instead of debating uh, the various uh, choices we have of how to address the threat we face, we need a much more hard process of, like they did in the Manhattan Project when they decided which of the technologies to use or in the Apollo program, when you had to try to go to the moon. We need something that's more focused, more systematic to identify the CDR techniques that are going to be able to scale in the time necessary to address the value of climate change. And we have to do that particularly within the DAC industry to try to get behind the direct air capture technology that, and 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 that will be able to scale the best and provide the best uh, offering. It doesn't have to be one, but it has to be, we have to do some internal assessments, each of us, and stop trying to advocate each of us our own preferred solution and commit ourselves to a much more rigorous process of of, of, of evaluation and accept the judgments in the name that we're all facing a threat. We all have to cooperate to address it. And I understand that that is so, so controversial. Uh, I mean, not so controversial, so difficult for us to do. Let me give you an example, several examples of how our incorrect view, and this is very relevant to your, your geoengineering blog at some level, because uh, in the following they, As I said, our analysis shows that we have to mobilize now, really mobilize like the way we did to build ships in world war ii or got ford to build tanks instead of automobiles or exxon to make rubber we need that sort of action now and,
0: and, and so, i don't disagree with you on that um but i do think that we need to um draw to a close so thank you very much for coming on um i'm going to hold fire on rejecting your technology uh, for now um it'll be interesting to see how things uh pan out compared to what you try not to describe as your competition, but I certainly do think of them as as competitors, whether there's going to be one company that wins out, or whether you'll have a more heterogeneous uh, ecosystem uh, of companies doing this kind of thing in future remains to be seen. Um, So I will um, hopefully be able to give you a more conclusive rejection rather than this uh, very tentative one um, uh, in due course. And uh, I will look forward to seeing how that pans out. So thank you very much for coming on. And, and thank you very much for Thank you.